I'm Selena Sage, and Live Free is for our collective liberation. Namaste and welcome to Wisdom Wednesday. Today I am very excited to feature the incredible Sufi saint Rabia of Basra. And as is always the case on these Wisdom Wednesdays when I feature wisdom from the mystics and masters, I feel overwhelmed by this task. And Rabia was a saint who was really only known to us in modern day times from writings that appeared about her 150 years after her life. So I spent this morning reading an amazing, a part of an amazing book that was really more like a dissertation. (laughs) And it's called Rabia from Narrative to Myth, The Many Faces of Islam's Most Famous Woman Saint, Rabia al-Adawiyah. And this book really describes how Rabia was a bit of a constructed saint that was a, a composite of the legends, stories, and different poems and accounts that were taken after the fact. There was no written record of her during the time of her life. She wrote no poems, yet she's known for those poems. And I came to know her through a book that I, I owned many years ago called Love Poems from God, which is a book by Daniel Ladinsky. And I remember when I, uh, when I owned this book, I had gone to walk one of the labyrinths I loved in Los Angeles at the uh, Movement of Spiritual Inner Awareness, which is this amazing uh, kind of hidden in plain sight, I guess you could say like society of belief <laughs> on freedom that had this amazing labyrinth in these Japanese gardens that you could visit. Um, it was free to the public. And so I was there and I'd walked the labyrinth and I remember I was reading this book and a gentleman just approached me from, from nowhere and was asking me about it. And I shared it with him and he was so taken by it that I just decided to give him the book. I was like, you should have it. And he was overwhelmed and During the course of our conversation, I remember that he asked me my race and I told him my race was black. And he said, no, 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 no. You're part of the golden race. And and that stuck with me. And he went on to explain how there is a commingling of all cultures that is occurring in the world and that this race can no longer be classified as black or white, but it represents the golden race, a reflection of the true nature of God, which is unity, which I thought was really beautiful. And so that stuck with me. And, um, and I, around that same time, I met Sally Kirkland at this movement of, of spiritual awareness. She's, she's an actress. And when she met me, she was always so, so very sweet to me. And she was convinced that I should become an actress. <laughs> she was really ready to take me under her wing. And I remember we attended this Christmas party for this um, yeah, MSIA. And she introduced me around. And I tend to shy from attention and the camera. So it really wasn't my vibration to, to go that route. But I just remember how she was, she was so convinced that I could be this amazing actress that 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 love touched me. And so when I think of the story of Rabia, I'm kind of reminded of those two circumstances. You know, this gentleman that I met, he saw me through this lens of unity and this, you know, as he termed this golden race, it was really beautiful. And the actress Sally Kirkland in her love saw me as a reflection of her in a way, perhaps, as you know, having this potential to be an actress. And both of those visions, I personally could see the beauty and the love in them and really appreciated them. And when I think of Rabia, 
the way that she has been seen through these various lenses, you know, as this saint, as this teacher, as this ascetic, as an icon, you know, the way that people embody her beliefs are reflective of the love that they have for actually the love she represented. And Sufi is known as the way of love, Sufism. And it's this mystical path of Islam that came about far after her time on earth. So she was born in 717, as best we can tell, and lived until 801. So she lived 500 years before Rumi. And she's actually um, sometimes seen as the the saint, the Sufi saint that most inspired Rumi. So what I'd like to do in discussing <laughs> this amazing saint is to start from the book that I was reading this morning, the Rabia from Narrative to Myth, which explores who she was as much as we can tell historically. And then I'd like to transition to the book that introduced me to her, Love Poems from God, which shows a perspective of Rabia and and some of the poetry that is now attributed to her, even though, again, she didn't actually write any poetry that we know of during her life. So I think in this way, we can see a little of the historical basis of her life as a, you know, an extraordinary woman who was born and lived in the city of Basra, which is in southern Iraq, and how she's kind of transformed into modern day times as this icon. And I can say, you know, when I was searching, doing a Google Google search for her this morning, there were so many different descriptions of the story of her life. <laughs> and I think that reflects how she's come to mean different things for different people. And the way that she is seen is through this lens of love. You know, people see her as a reflection of what a saint represents for them. So I'd like to um, just reflect on this book that was by the doctor, Rikia Cornell, and she spent 15 years working on this study of Rabia's life, which is remarkable. So she, she says in her book that Rabia's mythical image is forever on the horizon, and like a mirage as well, she changes form according to the perspective from which she is viewed. The farther away one gets from the quote-unquote real Rabia, the more one believes one knows her. However, the closer one gets to the sources that are supposed to provide empirical information on her life and teachings, the less one finds consensus. Also, like a mirage, Rabia's image dissolves when viewed at a close range. So this is again saying, you know, when you think of these stories that have come about from her life, you see some general similarities about what the, what the story is of her life and what it represents from a broad perspective, just in, in her remarkable way in which she moved about the world and how she influenced people. However, when you get closer to her life and times and her biography, it really dissolves. You don't see consistency in that story which is what I, I kind of found to be true. And, you know, and, it, and it's, she says, when seen at a greater distance and from a different angle, she reappears once again, clothed, and yet another narrative that attracts a new group of admirers. And so, you know, just to give you an idea of, of what I found, you know, there are stories of Rabia being from a very poor family, and she was orphaned, and that in the situation of her, her orphan, orphanage at a, at a young age, she was, uh, they're diverting accounts that she was sold into slavery, or that she was, because of her remarkable beauty, she was um, sold into, unfortunately, the prostitution side of slavery. 
And those divergent accounts depict stories that continue on even further. So from the, the, the secondary story of her being in a brothel, I read stories about how when men came to visit her, they were so taken by this light of God that alighted upon her that they were scared to touch her and left transformed and never returned to the brothel again. And then there are other stories that she suffered in that work and loved her sisters who were in that work, found strength and detached herself from what was happening to her physical form and her great devotion and love for God. So in those um, two narratives, you can see (laughs) that historically as saints, women saints are depicted as, you know, celibate figures who, like the Virgin Mary, were never touched, that narrative follows that track. The second narrative follows a different track that, you know, represents this very strong and powerful woman who, despite her circumstances, still was very strong and not diminished by what happened to her. And so in this case, we can see a great source of strength and light and power for those who have suffered, you know, unwanted touch and traumatic situations in life. Uh, Rabia becomes a saint for them. And then, you know, even uh, on the first angle of her being sold into slavery, there are stories of how the person that she was sold to heard her praying one day and realized how devoted she was to God and that she was a saint and that he had to free her and he saw her divinity. I mean, that can be used as a story of, you know, of the power of devotion. Rabia is, is like this mirage. She can, her story can be used to motivate and encourage and inspire different groups of people. And I think that's why no matter which narrative is true, the fact that she can mean all of these things to all of these people is just remarkable. It's remarkable. And I think that it, um, that, you know, as I was reading this, it, it rang true because of all of these various accounts that I'd read about her life. And, you know, you start to wonder what's, what's true. (laughs) So, Back to this kind of like level of dissertation um, in her story, closest to the time of her life, Rabia was remembered as an ascetic lover of God in the period after her death. So right after her time of life, she was remembered for this level of devotion to God, which I think inspired so many people, especially of the, um, the Muslim faith. And there's an account also in this book that her story is very similar to the stories of Fatima, who was the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad, and Aisha, who was the wife of the Prophet Muhammad, that these women were like venerated for their, um, their strength, their beauty, their devotion, and their love. So... One of the, I think one of the key things when you're tracking back from this history is that we have to remember that it was men. It was men that recorded these historical accounts. So I think that that is, um, that's one of the additional difficulties in divining what part of these stories are true, especially since she didn't, Uh, that we know of didn't write any poetry or any accounts of her life during her life. So I made a couple of other bookmarks about um, this, yeah, I think this very um, intellectual approach to her life. And this author, you know, kind of goes into this wonderful description of how myth is formed, how mythology is formed, what it comes to represent to, to people. I think that's very, very true because when you have figures like Rabia, 
who, yeah, definitely this mythical figure at this point, you can see that her, her story is such an inspiration. It's such an inspiration. So I'm going to um, also cite this uh, reference from the book that apparently there was a movie in 1963 called uh, Rabia al-Adawiya, and this widespread popularity of the movie actually also established um, an iconic image of Rabia that's known in the Muslim world today. So one of the things that I appreciated, though, about this scholarly study is that she, the author, um, Dr. Corn, uh, Cornell, she cross-referenced writings that she found about Rabia from different authors and found where there was a consistent quote, even though the story preceding the quote was slightly different. <laughs> and one of those such instances was that Rabia would say at the coming of night, the night has come, the darkness has mingled, and every lover is left alone with his beloved. Now I am alone with you, my beloved. And this was to mean her time alone with God, and that this was a time of her personal devotion. So this was, again, a, a quote that was cross-referenced to her from two different accounts at two different times by two different authors, and... Um, and so you, you kind of think that perhaps that is a true indication of what was actually said by her, which again speaks to this level of love and devotion that so inspired especially persons of, uh, of the Muslim faith. And in, uh, in Dr. Cornell's book, she also disputes this account that Rabia was actually enslaved based on historical facts of, of what was occurring in, in those times. And so one of, the, um, one of the things that was disputed by some is that she was not actually of Arab origin, but Dr. Cornell says that, yes, she must have been because she was treated as a highly valued person despite the fact that she was a woman, which is significant in that culture and in those times, even though by her des descriptions, it seems that women were treated differently than they, were, they are now in some Muslim cultures, and that a free woman could actually be seen as someone that's um, a good source for wisdom and someone you would take your, your problems to. And so there was a um, kind of this, again, this confirmed story that one of, the, um, one of the persons of the tribe, actually a group, asked if the men of the clan could buy a servant to do her chores. And Rabia was said to have applied, uh, replied, by God, I am ashamed to ask for the world from the one who owns the world. So how can I ask for the world from one who does not own it? So this is, you know, again saying that she was, she was so modest in her approach to life that she was, was saying that she was ashamed to ask for the world from God. So how can she ask for the world, which by her definition here as someone to clean, you know, bringing people to clean her house, how could she ask for that from persons that didn't own the world, that were not God? So again, just this incredible devotion and simplicity in life is what is described to her um, by these historical accounts of her. So the, the, the accumulation of all of these facts brought Dr. Cornell to believe that she was what, what's known as a hura, a free woman of good standing in her clan. So that disputes these other accounts that she was 
sold into slavery because, or that she was a servant, because it, in, in those times, it wasn't normal that a servant would be getting a servant, or even one that used to be a servant, to have a servant of their own. So all of these, you know, historical accounts that are, that are diagnosed, I would say, through that book, only affirmed to me the fact that despite what her story of origin was, her influence and her, just the stamp that she's left in culture is just this depiction of a life that inspired others. You know, through her devotion and through her love of God, she is still remembered to this day and revered. I mean, she is a Sufi saint. So what I'd like to do is kind of fast forward to Daniel Ladinsky's book, Love Poems from God, and read a few of the um, poems that he has included in the book, which, you know, again, it's un- it's unknown <laughs> if these were her actual words. But I think that you know, they are influenced by the mythology and the historical accounts that some believe of her. So Daniel Ladinsky, you know, his story, uh, his biography of her is the story of how she was sold into her slavery and she was uh, bought by a brothel for a large um, sum. And it was believed that she was forced to work as one might, in a brothel for many years, and that she said, what a place for trials and transformation did my lover put me. But never once did he look upon me as if I were impure. Dear sisters, all we do in this world, whatever happens, is bringing us closer to God. And this is one of Rabia's poems that always stayed with me after I I read it many years later. Because I actually appreciated that this was an account of a remarkable woman saint that didn't go by the traditional narrative of, you know, perfect and pure and, and never um, living a normal life as, as some women do. And I felt that this kind of story is actually really empowering to women because so many women believe that they can't be, you know, these religious masters because they've been married or because they've had children or because they're divorced. You know, all of these things that I think are narratives that are based on depictions of women that all came from men. (laughs) And the great masters will tell anyone that everyone has the ability to be a master, to be a guru, to be free. All that is required is recognition of our true nature or in this incredible devotion to God, which, you know, Rabia definitely embodied in everything that was said about her, that she had that devotion and that love for God that just permeated her being. So I think that, you know, this this is something that I I really appreciate because there, there are masters on record, um, like the Zen master Banke, who described to women <laughs> that liberation is possible. It's, it's not something that's just relegated to old men with long white beards. You know, being free, being enlightened, simply means understanding your true nature. And this is something that's available to everybody, no matter your life story or your, or your life circumstance. And so in this depiction of Rabia, I could definitely appreciate that she, she just embodied this love of God despite any circumstance. And there's this other, another poem attributed to her where she said, Show me where it hurts, God said and every cell in my body burst into tears before his tender eyes. He has repaid me, though, for all my suffering in a way I never wanted. The sun is now in homage to my face because it knows I have seen God. 
But that was not his payment. The soul cannot describe his gift. I just spoke about the sun like that because I like beautiful words and because it is true. Creation is in homage to us. So this poem is, is, is really beautiful and it's saying that she saw her, her blessing in, in this freedom, I guess, that couldn't be described into words. But she used the sun because she likes beautiful words and because she believes, you know, that creation is an homage to us, that this is a gift from God, which is really beautiful. So I'll read um, a few of the other poems from this book, Love Poems from God. Why think God has not touched everything that comes to your desk? True, he may have kept the best for himself. That is just the way it goes. So this is saying, you know, why not believe that everything that happens to us is something that God planned? That no matter what befalls us, whether we see it as a blessing or a curse, that these things are for us, gifts from God. This one is called Die Before You Die. Ironic, but one of the most intimate acts of our body is death. So beautiful appeared my death. Knowing who then I would kiss, I died a thousand times before I died. Die before you die, said the prophet Muhammad. Have wings that feared ever touched the sun? I was born when all I once feared I could love. Let's break that down a little bit. So she starts by saying, one of the most intimate acts of our body is death. And this is, I think, because the soul is, is free and the body returns to the earth. It's very, very, it's, it's an intimate act of connection in both degrees, both from the form and for the spirit. And so she thought about, you know, so beautiful appeared my death, knowing who then I would kiss, seeing that she would kiss God, you know, be mingled with God, that she died a thousand times before she died, that she released her body, you know, her form, and connected to God. And I think this, at, at least my way of reading this, is so much connected to what we hear from all of the masters, even what I quoted from Srimuji yesterday, that you know, when you release your idea and attachment to your form, when you recognize the true source of what you are, that's essentially dying before you die. And even, you know, in the words of Prophet Muhammad, this is something that is, is repeated in many different uh, religious and spiritual teachings. And by doing that, by relinquishing your identity, your ego self, your true nature, your true self is recognized. And in that recognition, you are in unity with all things. And I like this line, have wings that feared ever touched the sun? Have wings that feared ever touched the sun? This is, to me, it's saying that in the fear that we sometimes have of what it will mean if we drop our idea of who we think we are, we turn back before we reach that freedom, you know, before we reach that ultimate. We can't reach the sun if we don't continue flying into it. So in this letting go, you know, it has to be a complete surrender. And the beauty of teachings like the invitation from Sri Muji is that you can do it just for a moment as an experiment to realize what you are able to recognize and see. And that experience can further encourage and motivate you as you make it a normal practice. And she ends by saying, I was born when all I once feared I could love. Think of that. I was born when all I once feared I could love. 
if you fear negative circumstance, let's say, if you can see the beauty in that, in how that suffering can lead you to light, you would, no, you would no longer fear it. You would love it because you would recognize it as kind of a push that you need to recognize the ultimate. You know, seeing that all of these things were placed in front of you by the hand of God. This one is called Jealous of a Pond. When God said, my hands are yours, I saw that I could heal any creature in this world. I saw that the the divine beauty in each heart is the root of all time and space. I was once a sleeping ocean, and in a dream, I became jealous of a pond. A penny can be eyed in the street, and a war can break out amongst, uh, over it amongst the poor. Until we know that God lives in us, and we can see him there, a great poverty we suffer. Again, there's just so many levels here. It's beautiful. So when God said, my hands are yours, I saw that I could heal any creature in this world. This is, again, it's recognizing... Our source, you know, it, we that because God made us, God is in us. You know, God can't be everywhere present except in us. It's recognizing our divine nature. And she said, I saw that the divine beauty in each heart is the root of all time and space. This is a recognition of God in others. And saying that the divine beauty in each heart is the root of all time and space is so much like how the self is described in Advaita ideology. And Sufism is the way of love, but but these mystical paths are all pointing directly to the source. So it's when we see that divine beauty in others, when we recognize self in others, again, we are in touch with the, unit, the unification of all beings, our true unity. And Rabia says, I was once a sleeping ocean and in a dream became jealous of a pond. So think of this, I was once a sleeping ocean. So sleeping ocean can be seen as, as, as infinity, right? As the source, as, as just the, the, source of creation and and just the magnificence that is often used to describe the Tao or the self. It's just this endless source. And in this dream, she became jealous of a pond. So jealous of a pond to me means that you are everything, but somehow you're jealous of this, like this small phenomenal part. And so as I interpret it, it could mean that this, this awareness decided to live in this phenomenal reality as a person, you know, to experience nature as that, you know, as that, as that little pond that has this life, you know, these lily pads and these frogs. And that could be a description of the life that we're living in this phenomenal world as form. So she's saying a penny can be eyed in the street and a war can break out over it amongst the poor. So a penny, which we often think of as not having much value, but to to those who have nothing, it has great value. Until we know that God lives in us and we can see him there, a great poverty we suffer. So it's, it's, it's saying that when we recognize our nature as divine, we are no longer relegated to being poor persons fighting over a penny. <laughs> you know, we're, we're no longer in that realm of poverty. We are united with this great and ultimate truth, which imbibes us with tremendous 
power. And that power, you know, to me, I would describe it as this freedom, this peace, this love, this happiness, because it is our true nature. And until we recognize that, we're suffering. We're suffering from lack of peace, from, you know, from stress, from just feeling trapped, you know, all of these things that come from recognizing ourselves as the pond instead of the ocean happen. We're not in touch with our true divinity, with our true richness. It's just beautiful, you know, and this is just my interpretation. So I have two more poems that I marked, and I'm just going to go ahead and read them, even despite the time. (laughs) So this one is called It Acts Like Love. It acts like love, music. It reaches toward the face, touches it, and tries to let you know his promise that all will be okay. It acts like love, music, and tells the feet, you do not have to be so burdened. My body is covered with wounds this world made, but I still longed to kiss him. Even when God said, Could you also kiss the hand that caused each scar? For you will not find me until you do. It is that music helps us to forgive. Let's let's break this one down too. It's beautiful. So this is all about music. And it's saying that music acts like love. It reaches toward the face, touches it, and tries to let you know his promise with a capital H. So like God's promise that all will be okay. So music, it, it, it just can reassure you. And then she's saying that music acts like love because it tells the feet you don't have to be so burdened. You know, mu- music allows us to have that lightness and dance. Instead of feeling so grounded, you know, mu- music helps us to lift off from the ground, to fly, like love does. And then she says, my body is covered with wounds this world made, but still I longed to kiss him, capital H, him, like God. So she's saying that even though her body is covered with wounds that were man-made, she still has this devotion. She still has this love for God, that she doesn't hold those wounds against God, that she just you know, that devotion supersedes all that she feels that happened to her in this, you know, in this world. Even when God said, could you also kiss the hand that caused each scar? For you will not find me until you do. This is miraculous. This is something that speaks to the nature of forgiveness that we see in so much in spirituality. You know, and, and she's saying, could you also kiss the hand that caused each scar? Could you forgive to the level that you can see God in the person that harmed you? And she's saying, for you will not find me until you do, that you find God through that recognition of the divine in others. And this is something that's really hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat. <laughs> I think it's something that, you know, sometimes we when we're coming from the level of our personal identity, this kind of radical forgiveness does does not seem possible. But if we elevate the level of our consciousness to see the oneness in all beings, we understand that some people are at different levels of consciousness. And so we, we have compassion and we have love because we recognize that Despite all of that, we are one. And as you lift higher and higher and higher in your levels of consciousness, that eventually just becomes nothing. And you're only the infinite source. Even those little distinctions are no longer seen. But this is coming from the base level of of recognizing that power of forgiveness. And she's saying music helps us to forgive. Which is really lovely. I think music is such a uniting force. It's just beautiful. I read once that children sing before they can talk. They dance before they can walk. They draw before they can write. It's like the original 
Our original nature is art. It's art. Beautiful. Okay, the last poem I have bookmarked. (laughs) I like this one. It's called, Could You Wait Till Four? My understanding used to be like a stream that easily described all along the bank as its ken moved through the world. When I entered God, my vision became like his. It flooded out over existence. I knew no limits. The future I can now see with as much certainty as the past. If I stretched my arm its full length, I could caress any creature in this universe, and Rabia does not exaggerate. Thus, going to bed one night, I knew a thief would be breaking in at 3 a.m., so I wrote a note and put on my door that said, Could you wait till 4? For the passion in prayers usually starts to wane by then. So let's break this one down as well. So she's saying, my understanding used to be like a stream. So the stream, you know, that kind of moved along the banks and and had this understanding of what it touched. And when she, but when she entered God, my, my vision became like his. It flooded out over existence. I knew no limits. So no longer was she the stream. She became this ocean where there were just, there were just no limits. She could see it all. And that's what I was describing a little bit with when you raise those levels of consciousness, you start to see that broader nature, that oneness. So Rabia is saying, I can now see with as much certainty the future as I can the past. So she's beyond the confines of time. And she's saying, if I stretch my arms its full length, I could caress any creature in this universe. So she's in unity and at one with all beings. And so she uses this, this story of because of this great awareness, she knew that a thief would be breaking into her house at 3 a.m. So she put a note on the door that asked the thief, could you wait till four? And the reason being is that the passion in her prayers usually starts to wane by then, which is this beautiful depiction not only of not caring that a thief was coming, and she's just inviting the thief to come at a later time. She's also suggesting that she's praying through the night. And she's saying that her her passion and her prayers usually starts to wane by 4 a.m. I mean, what a remarkable account. And I think that's the beauty of Rabia, is not only was she this woman of color in a living in a time when women were not necessarily revered in the culture she was raised in, but she proved to be an exception to this, a radical exception. She inspired all genders, all ages, and she continues to inspire thousands of years after she lived, just through the mythology of what she represented. And though we can't know for sure if these poems were her exact words, we can know that they are attributed to her because of the spirit that she embodied to certain groups based on their belief in her mythology. Whether she was this slave who became free or a, a woman who was sold into a, a brothel and eventually was given her freedom. Whatever the story is, she was just this influential, amazing figure who I find incredibly, incredibly inspiring. And she is a Sufi saint. I mean, she is seen to have inspired the poetry of Rumi, who came 500 years after her life. So she's just, I think, just an extraordinary mystic. (laughs) And despite the story of the true story of her life, we know that she lived, you know, that's been confirmed by various accounts by different writers. So she was a real person who existed. And just her impact on those different people that wrote about her 
must have been extraordinary because every account of her is just a description of, of love and devotion. So I think this, this just, it just goes to show that the people that encountered her saw her through this beautiful lens, which means that she must have been reflecting the love of God. She must have been reflecting God, who is love. And I think of, you know, the story of how I, that I shared of my own life, meeting uh, both the man who I, whose name I don't even remember, who mentioned me as being part of this golden race, and, and the actress Sally Kirkland, who saw me as this great actress. I mean, what a gift to be seen in this beautiful light. And this doesn't always happen, of course. You know, there could be people that have different views of you that are not necessarily positive. But to have persons who, who see this love and beauty in, in you means that you're reflecting to them this beauty that they, that they see of themselves or, or as beyond themselves, which is a powerful description of love. And it's a blessing if we can receive that and reciprocate that and see God in others, to recognize this divine light and to point it out however we can, you know, in whatever kind way, because it sticks with people. You know, the stories that I'm, I'm describing happened to me at least 10 years ago. You know, when, when we put people in touch with their true nature in these kind ways, they stay with you. And I think the life that Rubia lived obviously stayed with people. She was just this remarkable example of light and love. And if we can live our lives in that way, in just a small way, (laughs) then that can have a tremendous impact on ourselves and others. And sometimes people give us that gift of describing how they see God in us. And so in this this episode of this podcast, I would just like to say, I see God in you. That beautiful light. I just encourage you to shine it. Be the description of the guru or the master or the mystic that you so appreciate in these stories of others because you are capable because they did it we can do it be the master that you're looking for or if you know of a master or guru who you greatly admire be that embody those characteristics I remember there was this movement um, at a time you'd see these bracelets um, that stood for what would Jesus do? WWJD, and people would wear them. And to me, that's a representation. It's like in every moment you have a decision. You can act from this space of personhood that can be full of judgments and divisions, or you can elevate the level of your action to think about what someone like Jesus or Rabia or Muji or Sri Ramana Maharshi, what would those beings do? And speaking of Sri Ramana Maharshi, I was thinking about this. You know, I read another account of Rabia that at some point in her life, she just walked around naked. You know, after she became like this super free person, she like moved to the desert and just walked around naked. And I think about Sri Ramana Maharshi, we see pictures of him just wearing a loincloth. And so I think so often we think of our saints and masters as, you know, people that are wearing these flowing robes and fully covered, not an inch of skin. But then you have these radical mystics and masters who didn't care about those things. So it doesn't matter how you live your life or what clothes you wear. You are capable for radical transformation. Anybody can become a saint. It's just recognizing your true nature as self. 
Nothing else matters. Your story does not prevent you from freedom. And so, and a lot of the stories that are told by Rabia, I think it, it solidifies that. No matter if you were a slave or in a brothel or, you know, treated poorly, none of those things prohibit you from being free. Your story does not discount you from achieving enlightenment. All that matters is that you recognize what you truly are. You recognize God in you, and then you recognize yourself as one with this creative source. That through your own powers of observation, you can view all existence. You see all as one. And it doesn't even matter if people see you in a positive light, as I described, you know, from my, those two experiences, or if they see you as, you know, a thief. All that matters is what you choose to do, who you want to be, the place that you decide to live from. If you use these masters and mystics as guides to become what they embodied, then you automatically make your decisions from a higher level. And it pushes you to a place where you recognize that you create your reality. Only you. So I... I'm just, uh, yeah, Wisdom Wednesdays always take me away. (laughs) So I'll stop there and just encourage you to, again, look for that light in yourself and others and be that. And I just always, as always, I thank you for being here. Namaste.